Let's get back to Sports and Torts with David Spada and Elliot Harris on TalkZone.com. On the phone we have former New York Yankee player. He was a San Diego Padres broadcaster for many years. He still calls some games. And he also fought in two wars, not just one, World War II in Korea. Jerry Coleman. How you doing, Mr. Coleman? Everything is okay and I'm still alive. I guess that's the best thing I can say. <laughs> Exactly, but you're still calling some Padre games, I see, occasionally. Yeah, I, I do about 30 games, and I do interviews on the home games uh, every day with the manager and straighten him out when he goes haywire. So outside of that, everything is under control out here, except uh, we're near last place. Colorado nosed us out the last place last night, and we're uh, way down there, but we've won five games in a row, which is a world record for us this year. They may be doing you a favor by limiting the number of games that you actually have to go to. At least for this season. Well, no, I don't. You, you, got, you, got to, you got to cover some pretty good teams, though, with the Padres. You got it. Well, in Chicago, you know, which where you guys are, you got the White Sox in first place and the Cubs in last place. That's kind of a reversal of what's happened in the past. We got to thank you, though. You sent us Anthony Rizzo. He's kind of turning <laughs> the season around. Okay. Well, yeah. The White Sox have Jake Peavy. I'd like to have him back. He was a marvelous pitcher, and after his arm is straightened out, he's going great again. I forgot one of your jobs. You were a manager of the Padres in 1980. Maybe you'll come back and manage again. Well, I was brilliant. The players were lousy, you see. <laughs> so we we came in last, and uh, it was a job I should never have taken because when you take a job like that, the players on the field like to know who you are and what you are. And I'd been out of uniform, good Lord, almost 35 years. They didn't know whether it was a Chinaman or from Mars. So consequently, that was a big hurdle to overcome. We just didn't have enough horses to get good, that's all. They didn't recognize you as a, a former ball player, I will imagine. No, they didn't. They, they had no idea. You know, I, I was a broadcaster to them, and in most cases they thought, what's this guy, a broadcaster, doing managing us? And, uh, of course, it was a great experience for me because it taught me that players today think a little differently than we did. You know, money is such a major factor in today's game for baseball players that having a good year is better than winning in many cases. When you came up with the Yankees in 49, who was your manager? Was it Stengel or was it before Stengel? No, well, I, I came up at the end of 48 and sat on the bench and didn't play. Bucky Harris was the manager then. And then they hired Casey Stengel in the offseason. I played for Casey for nine years. So basically, he was my only major league manager that I played for. Was he as difficult to understand as a player as he was for the media to comprehend what whatever it was that came out of his mouth? No, I, I, I think part of that was show. I mean, he was great that way. He's a great personality. And in New York, when you had 10 newspapers and all these radio stations and whatever, you needed somebody just like him to make it work. And consequently, if he wanted to get a point across, it took about four words to get that point across. He basically was a very bright baseball man. And if he wanted something from you, he told you exactly what he wanted and you got it. When you came up in uh, 48, you played a few games. Then in 49, you won the Rookie of the Year. Did you find it an easy transition from the minors to the majors? Well, I didn't think I was going to make the team, to be honest with you, because I'd been in Newark most of the 1948, and I hit 250. That was a AAA club. And I was up there in spring training, and uh, Casey liked young players. And I was one of those, along with Bobby Brown, Hank Bauer, Gene Woodling, and that group. And so uh, Yogi Berra, to mention another, uh, we were all young guys, and he gave me a chance to play because George Sternweiss, who was the second baseman when I arrived, got hurt the opening day and gave me a chance to play, and I kept the job after that. Now, you played six years, excuse me, in the minors. 
was there ever a point where you said, I'm in the Yankee system, it's going to take me another six years to get to the roster, I'll be ready to retire by the time I'm a rookie. Well, part of those six years was service time. Uh, you know, I played in 1942 because I wanted to become a naval aviator, but I had to be 18, and I was only 17. So I played that summer in Wellsville, New York, a Class D league that's way down at the bottom. And that's how I started in baseball at that time. Then when I came back, I played in 46, 7, and 8, and I made the big leagues at the end of 48. When did you uh, join the Marines? Was it the following year, or did you wait a couple years? No, I, I joined the Marines. Actually, the Naval Aviators program was called Victor 5, V5, and you had to be 18 to get into that. And I was only 17, and I just mentioned why I played baseball in 1942, because I was waiting until September 14th, which was my birthday. And so I joined the V5 program in, I think, uh, September, late September 1942, and then went into the service. And uh, on April 1st, 1944, I was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the United States Marine Corps, and I got my very valuable Navy wings of gold. That was the highlight of my life, to be honest with you. Had you had any previous aviation experience or just... I've never been in a plane, believe me. And it was so romantic. You know, at that time, there was a man by the name of Joe Foss in the Solomon Islands who was knocking out Japanese uh, planes right and left, I think over 20. And he really came into the pre-flight school when I was there and talked to us. And I said, I'd like to be Joe Foss Jr. And consequently, that's why I got into the Marine Corps because I could have gone Navy or Marine and I went Marines. And you flew, what, 120 missions? Yeah, I flew, uh, let's see, <laughs> 57 in uh, World War II and 63 in Korea. When you were flying those missions, what was going through your head? Like, did you ever think to yourself, why am I doing this? I could be playing baseball? Well, you, you have to remember the time. Uh, World War II was the start of the greatest war in the history of mankind. And the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. I lived in San Francisco. And we thought the Japanese were going to come up the California coast. We had blackouts in San Francisco in that uh, winter. But consequently, the whole thing was, you know, you're fighting for your country. And that's exactly why I went in. And I wanted to be a naval aviator. The point is, I, I wrote a book. And in the book, on the top cover, I said, there are two things that are important to me in my life. The people that I love and who love me and my country. And believe me, anyone who lives in this country doesn't take the fact that your country is the biggest part of your life, doesn't know what's going on. What was the return to civilian life like after your World War II experience? Well, after World War II, in, in uh, what, uh, August uh, 14th, 1945, the war ended. And uh, so I'm thinking, what am I going to do now? Well, I got a winter job, but I, I was going back to, to the Yankees as a player. I ended up in Binghamton, New York, and then I went to Kansas City and then to Newark. And from Newark, I went to the Yankees. So I, I went right back to baseball, hoping I could make a career out of that. I give you credit, though, with the war of fighting, because a lot of the players went over there and they just played baseball. Well, <laughs> I, no, I never thought about that. No, I, uh, A lot of my friends uh, got on service teams, and as you said, they played all over the country and went over to the Pacific and so forth. But that was never part of my uh, thought process. I wanted to win the war to help win the war. And at that time, you have to go back now. We're talking, what, 70 years ago or something like that. And think of what it was like when you were attacked because the Japanese blew us out in Pearl Harbor. And the thing that changed World War II in the Pacific 
was in the first week of June 1943 or two, I guess 1942, when the Navy carrier pilots knocked out four Japanese carriers and changed the war in the Pacific. The Japanese were never a threat after that. Over in Europe, of course, was a different kind of war. It was a land war, and they were going back and forth, right and left. But in the Pacific, the war covered tens of thousands of miles. Did you ever get a chance to fly with Ted Williams? No, uh, we were both called back in Korea, and he he went to K three. That's a, that's a um, uh, like a, a, a Korea airfield. They had fifty five of them in Korea. I was at K six. He was at K three. And we went in together in Jacksonville. We took our physicals and then reported to different areas. And I went over from El Toro, and he went over from, I guess, Cherry Point. But we both got there. But he went to K-3 in jets, and I was in, in Corsairs at the Bent Wing plane at K-6. So we were there at the same time, but at different airfields. I'm picturing Top Gun with you two together. <laughs> he, was, he, was a, he was a wonderful person. And tragically, the last time I saw him, was here in San Diego when he was taken over here in the hospital. I went to visit him, and he could barely talk, and I felt so bad for him. He died a couple of months later. So after Korea, did you ever fly recreationally? No, I, I never got in a plane except in the military, I mean, as a pilot. I, I, I have a million-mile tickets for American Airlines. <laughs> I've been back and forth across this country 10,000 times, I think. But basically, I never flew a plane except in military service. When you were with the Yankees, I mean, you had some great teammates with DiMaggio, you had Mantle, Whitey Ford. What were the keys to the success of those teams? Well, pitching was was a big thing. I mean, D DiMaggio, I played with him his last four years, and Yogi Bear I played with for my entire nine years. Uh, Whitey Ford, great pitcher. But our pitching staff of Rashi, Reynolds, Lopat, and Ford was as good as any pitching staff anywhere. Now, when you look at what happened to the pitching staffs of other teams, Cleveland, Lemon, Feller, Wynn, Garcia, three of them are Hall of Famers. And also, Trucks, Trout, Newhouse, Hutchinson, those were the Detroit pitching staff. In those days, you pitched every fourth day and you had four starting pitchers. Now, they have five starting pitchers and they pitch every fifth day. The bullpen has changed the scope of baseball as far as hitting is concerned. Because in the old days, we'd say, hey, let's work on this guy. About the third time up, we'll get him. He doesn't come up the third time now. you got somebody in the bullpen throwing the ball 100 miles an hour at you. So the, the bullpen has really changed, I think, has changed hitting dramatically. You think there's a chance that the four-man rotation makes a comeback? I, I see that there's some inroads trying to be made. Well, I, you know, that's hard to ask me because we've had seven of our starting pitchers on the disabled list this year. We've had 17 players all together on the disabled list. I don't know what's going on in the world of sports, but in baseball, we've had so many disabled players that's more than we have on the team. And consequently, it's difficult. But I don't, I don't think you'll ever get back to that four-man rotation as it stands right now. They get five men, and they have the bullpen, they have the, <laughs> the setup guys and the closer. And these players are, are developed in the minor leagues many times. And a closer can change the game. Believe me, you get a good closer, you get a one-run lead, you win. And consequently, they develop those in the minor leagues. They have set up men ahead of the closer. So what's happening in the bullpen has changed hitting dramatically, I think. It's harder to hit now than it was when I played. You started broadcasting with the Yankees, then you went to the Angels, and then the Padres. Is there a reason that you bounced around before you settled with the Padres? Well, I, I'm from the West Coast, and Buzzy Babesi, who, who ran the, the 
San Diego Padres early on. My wife hated the East Coast. I lived there in New York for 20 years. She never liked it. So when I found out that they were going to open up a team in Los Angeles, I talked to Buzzy and I said, listen, I'd love to get out there if I could and, uh, you know, get back to my home state. Well, he said, okay, so I hired, hired three other guys. And then uh, a couple of years later, I saw him in, in uh, Chicago and he said, hey, I want to talk to you. I said, I'd like to talk to you too. And I made a deal with him with the uh, 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 San Diego Padres at that time, and I came on in 72. Now, this is my 40th year with the Padres. It's my 70th year in professional baseball. But overall, the fact that, uh, you know, I went out there is because I wanted to go there. And I left everything I had in New York and came out to the West Coast, and I got a job waiting for my job in San Diego in Los Angeles at KTLA, a television station out here. And I did that for two years. And then the third year, I went down to San Diego in 1972, and I've been here ever since. Now, I'm I, I'm semi-retired right now. I only do about 30, 30 games, and I do interviews for the club and do a promotional work for them. So it's, it, it's very nice. I'm 88 now, you know, and if, <laughs> I will be in September. And if I run out of my contract, I'll be 91. I don't know if I'll be alive then, but that's where it grows right now. What made you get into broadcasting? A guy by the name of Howard Cosell. You ever hear of him? <laughs> oh, never. <laughs> I know. Well, anyway, he and I were good yeah. friends. And, uh, you know, I always helped him out. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know Howard Cosell had any friends. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was his friend. And I liked him. In fact, I used to spend uh, nights in his house. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. But anyway, he's... He wanted me to go into broadcasting because while I was waiting to get my job on the West Coast, I, I, I went, went to work for the Van Heusen Shirt Company. And uh, it was okay. I wasn't interested. But I thought I could be transferred to the West Coast. But anyway, he got me into broadcasting, and the Yankees finally hired me as a broadcaster. A guy by the name of Len Fawpel, who ran the uh, Ballantyne Beer Company promotional staff, hired me. And I started there along with Phil Rizzuto. Red Barber and Mel Allen. It was, we had a great time. That lasted, uh, I think, about nine years. But my wife hated the East Coast, and so finally I said, okay, we'll go home. And that's how I came out to the West Coast. And I had to look around to get a job, which I finally got at KTLA in Los Angeles. It's surprising when you said, like how he was saying, that he was your friend, because we've interviewed a lot of people, like Frank Giff and other people, and they mentioned Howard Cosell, but no one's ever called him their friend. Well, he was a friend of mine, and I liked him, and he liked me, and we got along great. And he's the guy that literally got me into broadcasting. And, uh, you know, he was he was a very uh, outspoken person, but he changed the game of sportscasting. Instead of asking, well, how's everything with the family today? You know, he'd say, I understand you and so forth, don't get along. You know, he got into that kind of interviewing, and pretty soon he changed the whole scope of broadcasting. I mean, it, it's not good if you're a broadcaster to ask questions that are embarrassing to people, but sometimes if you're in the news and the sportscasting, you have to ask some touchy questions. He did it. Well, he must have known what he was talking about because you end up in the Hall of Fame as a broadcaster, right? <laughs> I want to tell you one thing. That was the last thing in my mind that I would ever be as a broadcaster. And the fact that I get into the Baseball Hall of Fame as a broadcaster still fascinates me. <laughs> I never thought about it. I love the game. I love doing what I was doing. I like the players. And consequently, when you have a job like that, it's very hard not to do good, I think. I think you do well when you like things. But again, you're not the oldest guy calling games. I think Bob Wolf's got you by a couple years. 
Oh, yeah, I, I saw Bob in New York at the old-timers game uh, about uh, two or three days ago. And he's still going along. I'm not sure what he's doing, but he's been there longer than I have. In fact, he was broadcasting the Washington Washington Senators when I was a broadcaster. So I've known Bob forever, I think. So who who was the most difficult uh, interview you had? Well, I think Yogi would be, be that because he he didn't you know talk a lot. You know, when, when you get a guy that doesn't talk much, it's hard to do an interview because you're always looking for questions to keep answering to keep it going. But from the standpoint of personality, Yogi was a wonderful person. He just wasn't a talker. And there are those people, you ask a question, they never shut up. You, know, you can't stop them. So it varies. But I, I, I would say Yogi was probably more difficult because he didn't expand on his ideas. But, you know, people look at Yogi as being kind of a clown, a character, and so forth. He was one of the smartest baseball men I know. He never made a mistake on the field. He knew exactly what was going on. And he he knew more about what the pitcher was doing than the pitcher himself knew. He really was a very bright person. But he doesn't get credit for that. They come up with all these silly things that he said. He didn't say half of those and make most, most of them up. But he's, in fact, I just saw him in New York two days ago, and he he can't walk very well now. But he's a wonderful person, and I've known God, you know, 1948 on. It's been a long time. I'll tell you what, you're the second person to say that about Yogi. Bill White, former broadcaster and president of National League and Players, said his first interview was with Yogi Berra. He goes, I don't know what was happening to me because I was asking questions which were yes-no answers, and that's what Yogi gave me back. But he said, you know what, I got to know Yogi well over the years, and he is an extremely intelligent guy, and he made me a better broadcaster. I'm going to tell you something. People don't understand Yogi Berra. He knew his business. He knew baseball as good as any of them. And he wasn't a speaker, though. He wasn't a guy to get up and make speeches and try to snow the under. He understood what was going on in the game and who could play and who couldn't play. And actually, when you come to Yogi, you talk about hitting. He's one of the best hitters going. Not for average, but for clutch hits. He was as good as anybody. Now, you've had the opportunity to broadcast a lot of great baseball players and baseball teams. What, what was your favorite season? Well, when when you win, you know, the, the best thing that ever happened in out here was in 1984 when we won the National League pennant and got into the World Series and didn't do too well, as I recall. But, you know, for, for San Diego, we don't get there very often. We've been into the playoffs, I think, four or five times. Uh, we got into the World Series against the Yankees, and I forget what year that was. But, uh, you know, somebody asked me, he said, well, who are you rooting for, the Yankees or the Padres? I said, it worked for the Padres. What a dumb question that was for us. <laughs> They're always pulling for the Padres. But when, when the Padres aren't involved, I'm still a Yankee fan, always will be. I'll tell you what, though. You beat our Cubs in 84, and you've got to more World Series in the past probably 100 years than the Cubs have. Well, I understand that. I, that, I, I can't complain <laughs> in that sense. We've been in, the, I've been in the World Series twice, I think, in the playoffs four times, and it's very exciting for us here in San Diego. In 1984, when we played the Cubs, uh, if you turned on the radio anywhere from 100 miles north and all the way down to Mexico, all you heard was Padre baseball. Everybody in Southern California was on the radio listening to the Padre, and that was an exciting moment for us. As a player, uh, in the 57 World Series, you hit 364, and, and then you retired. Why? They retired me because they had Bobby Richardson coming on, a young second baseman, and uh, they put me in, in a job in, in, in the front office. They, they offered me a job as a personnel director for the Yankees, which put the minor league teams together. That's what your job was, developing all the players and getting them to the big leagues. 
And uh, I said to George Weiss, the man who offered me the job, he said, I said, well, what happened if I don't take this? He said, well, we could trade you. So that's it. So my family was living in Richwood, New Jersey, which is a suburb of New York, as a young daughter and son going to school. And I thought, what do I, you know, I'm at the end. I was 32 then. I was pretty young to retire. But even so, I, I thought, you know, I'm not going to get any better. And so I'll take this job and start a new career, which is what I did. I did that for three years until I found out that I was traveling nine months out of the year, and it was a disaster to my family, so I finally quit, and that's when I came out here. Who uh, gave you the title, the Master of the Malaprop? I don't know. I, I suppose, uh, <laughs> you know, the, like I said once, uh, uh, Joe Jones is throwing up in the bullpen. I said, he's throwing him up. Well, I meant he's playing catch, you see, but they said I said he was throwing up. Well, if I had his stuff, I'd throw up anyway, I guess. But anyway, also, uh, you know, I, I may have said things, I don't even remember I said that, but I talk fast, and I don't go back and correct things sometimes, and I don't have to worry about that anymore because I don't talk that fast anymore. But at least, you know, people were listening to you. Well, yeah. Otherwise, they would have paid no attention to it, right? Well... There was some guy here in San Diego. Every time I miscued something, as, as an example, uh, I said, there's a driver left here, Winfield, going to the ball. Oh, hits his head against the wall. It's rolling toward the infield. Well, I met the ball, of course. <laughs> and the, <laughs> people picked on that one like, it wasn't his head. It was the ball, for heaven's sake. If they didn't understand that, I don't know what that's. <laughs> anyway, those things don't bother me at all, believe me. They should have listened to Harry Carey back in the day with the Cubs. He, the Cubs Listen, ball. I listened to Harry a lot, even when he was with the St. Louis Cardinals. I know all about him. <laughs> and he was a good broadcaster. But he was entertaining as well. That's the main thing. And, of course, he made they have a statue of him out in front of Comiskey Park in, in, in Chicago. The guy was, I think, a classic, really. That was Jerry Coleman, former Yankee star. Still a broadcaster into his 80s. You are listening to Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com with David Spade and Elliot Harris. And we will be right back. <laughs> 